Father, I'm so thankful for this church, and uh, really it is exciting to hear that people just want to greet one another, and they want to talk and chat, and uh, uh, Lord, I would pray that it doesn't end in the service time, but that after service, that they would be seeking one another out, and uh, they'd be finding people to communicate with, and then all throughout the week, they'd just be sharing their lives together. Uh, Father, I do pray for our church. Uh, Lord, we want to uh, do the best job that we can to honor and glorify you in everything that we do and say. But uh, for us to do that, we need to be uh, empowered by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, I know in the power of your Spirit, you've allowed us to have uh, various uh, people serving in different ways in this church, Lord. Uh, so I thank you so much uh, for uh, the, the people that serve uh, in individual ministries, that every Sunday and every week there's people that are uh, actively giving up of their time and their energy to love you and to love other people through service. Uh, this morning, I want to thank you for the 20 and 30-somethings ministry that uh, Carrie Palmerlow leads and uh, just the value of a, of a woman with more experience in life ministering to uh, some younger women in the church. Uh, just that, that picture from the book of Titus that the older women, uh, more experienced women, would raise up the younger women. Uh, Father, so I thank you for that example, and I pray that you'll be blessing uh, that ministry and bless the ladies that are involved in it. Uh, Father, I pray also for our missionaries that we send out. I pray for Rachel Pock right now, and uh, I'm thankful for the work that she's doing in the Middle East and the work that she does with Syrian refugees and, uh, Lord, the hard work that she's been doing uh, over the last year of just trying to learn the language. It's got to be difficult to transition from English to a language that's uh, completely backwards to us. They even read the wrong direction or the opposite direction, Lord. I just pray that you would bless uh, her and her ministry, bless her time home resting and uh, through the summer and, and then uh, prepare her to go back uh, to continue on that ministry. And Lord, we know that there are other churches in Cheyenne and that you uh, love each one of those people, that everybody in those churches is just like us, made in the image of you, Father. And so we're thankful for uh, the, the church uh, in Sun Valley, Sun Valley Community Church with uh, Pastor Don over there. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless that church, that they would have the ability to just reach out into their neighborhood, just the, the families and the houses all surrounding that church, that uh, that would really become a great neighborhood church, that you would uh, build up your kingdom there and in that way. And then this morning, Lord, would you build up and edify us as individual Christians in your word. Uh, Father, we see that John was written of the purpose that we might believe. And so I'm asking that if there are those who are not believers here today, uh, that they would hear this and it would spark something within them, whether it's planting a seed or watering a seed or even harvesting, Father, that we would be able to be a, a part of that. For all of us who are believers, Lord, uh, still we know that we can grow in our faith, that we can grow stronger in our belief. So would you build us up in that as well uh, this morning as we go through John. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, open it to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand in the air. Uh, now, normally I tell you what we're going to do next week at the end of service, uh, but I just want to bring this up at the beginning of service or at the beginning of the sermon today. Next week will be in John chapter 12, so if you uh, are somebody who likes to solve puzzles, the puzzle of Calvary Chapel is we go from 11 to 12, right? We go chapter by chapter through books of the Bible, uh, and we are intending, got one more back here, Tim, uh, we are intending... Uh, for the believers to hear the Word of God, to be built up by that. If we just work our way through the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God will do their work in your life. Uh, but as I shared with you last week, sometimes people can't make it every Sunday. And so for those who can't make it every Sunday, which is the majority of people, everybody's going to have something that comes up, uh, I would encourage you to not skip a chapter. Uh, what I mean by that is it's, if you're going to miss church, you're going to miss church. That's just a thing that happens. 
but go ahead and do the reading so that you can at least not have a, a section of the book that you didn't get to. Uh, and then in addition to that, just realize that even if you aren't here for the sermon live, if you're someplace else and you just happen to be near computer, uh, you're able to watch us live online. You just go to our website, calvarychapelcheyenne.org. Uh, and when you get there, you can just click on the Bible teaching link. And then from there, you can find Watch Live, or you can go back and listen to all the Old Testament, all the New Testament, the book and through the Bible, all the different series we've done over the years. Uh, but the other thing you can do is subscribe to the podcast. If you are a person who uh, just likes to have that just automatically downloaded to your phone or wherever you listen to your podcast, you can do that. So I thought I'd just show you real quickly how to do that. This is our webpage. Uh, I've clicked on the Bible teaching link. And if you look all the way down at the bottom of that list of stuff there, you say subscribe to the podcast. When you click on that, it'll take you to this page here. When you get here, there's two sections. Uh, there is a section for those who are using Macs, the superior section, I call it. Uh, just kidding. It's a joke. iPhone users understand what I'm talking about. Uh, but where it says uh, Sunday morning or Wednesday morning, you can actually just click on that if you're on your phone. It'll automatically take you straight into your uh, podcast app on your phone and it'll let you subscribe while you're in there. If you're not using an Apple, we still want you to be able to hear the word because we still love you. And uh, so even though I make jokes, even though I jest, uh, so you can actually go in there and just copy and paste uh, the HTML there, the, the web link there, and paste that into whatever podcast app you use. Uh, but just wanted to see, it's actually a pretty simple thing, and then once you get it in there, you're going to want to subscribe to it. You just download, it'll just be there for you. Uh, that way you don't have gaps in your understanding. So if we're going through the Gospel of John, uh, it's 20-some chapters, 22 chapters, uh, and if the statistics are right, the average American Christian who attends church regularly says that they attend church every once, every five to six weeks, uh, that would mean we're going through 22 chapters, but you're getting like five of those chapters, maybe four of those chapters. That's not really getting the Gospel of John in a chapter-by-chapter -chapter version there. So I'm just suggesting that uh, I'm not going to uh, force you to come to church. I'm going to let you figure out in your schedule how that works. I wish everybody was here every Sunday uh, because I have to be. It's only fair. But... Um, <laughs> But I also think it's valuable from the fellowship aspect for you as well to just be around other believers. It encourages you in your faith to be around other believers. But if you can't, understand it's still important to hear the Word of God. It's still important to have that be a part of your life. So with that being said, we are in the Gospel of John. Again, this whole book was written according to the author, uh, so that you may believe. Uh, for those who are already believers, it builds on the belief that you already have by going through this gospel uh, of, of Jesus here. Uh, for those who maybe haven't believed in the past, hearing the things that Jesus is doing, coupled with the Holy Spirit working in his word, may bring you to a point of believing. And once again, that is the key thought here in John chapter 11. It's a pretty famous chapter. Uh, this is the chapter where Jesus is going to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. Now, if you've heard that story over and over and over like I have, you're like, yeah, Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead. But I, I recall this from years ago. My wife was teaching Sunday school class, and she was mentioning, you know, Jesus is going to resurrect this guy from the dead. And one of the kids who's never heard this story before went, what? That's amazing. I've never heard anything like that before. It really is. It's amazing. And for us who've heard it over and over, it just kind of just kind of loses its power. But this is amazing that Jesus had somebody who had been dead for four days. And then he brought him back to life. 
And so the question that Jesus is going to eventually ask in this passage is, do you believe this? And we'll go uh, into that and see how people kind of respond to the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. There's going to be, uh, I found, seven different responses of the people involved in this passage. Seven different responses. Uh, everywhere from murder to worship. And then all along the spectrum in between. But as people are going to respond to that, uh, hopefully you can kind of look at that and ask yourself this question. How should I respond to that? How should I respond to somebody who has the power to speak to the dead and have them stand up, walk out, and live again? So here we are, John chapter 11. I'll begin by reading here. Uh, It says this, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So that's the setup. That's the context. Lazarus is sick. A note has been sent to him, to Jesus, that Lazarus is sick. And everybody wants to kind of see how Jesus is going to respond. Uh, It is known at this point uh, who Lazarus is. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, who actually get pretty famous in the scripture as well for serving and for worshiping. Uh, Jesus even, or John even mentions in this passage that this is the Mary who is going to anoint the feet of Jesus and uh, wipe his feet with her hair. Uh, This is that Mary, what we don't really grasp right now, although we might remember that scene. Just understand it doesn't actually happen until John chapter 12. When John wrote this, it already happened. Everybody already knew who she was. And so he tells us who she is, uh, but we'll see that come out more clearly. Uh, But I I love this in verse 3. It says, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And then in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Uh, What is not as clear in the English as what's made clear here in the Greek When the note says, he whom you love is sick, the Greek word is phileo, where we get our word, our name for a city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Uh, When they say, Jesus, the one whom you love is sick, uh, they're saying, the one whom you love as a brother is sick. But then it says, Jesus loved not just Lazarus, but also his sister and his other sister, Martha and Mary, it uses a different word for love there. It uses the word agapeo, which is the all-encompassing love of God. Uh, In other words, as much as they think Jesus loves Lazarus, he loves Lazarus way more than that. He loves Lazarus way more than they understand. Of course, it's true for all of us. God loves each and every one of us in an all-consuming fashion. He loves us way more than we think He loves us. And He loves the people that we don't love so much way more than we think He loves them. He loves everybody in this sense. But what's interesting here in verse 4, in between the love sandwich there, in between verses 3 and 5 is 4, 
Jesus heard this. He said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified. Why is Lazarus sick? So that God could be glorified. If you think of your sickness in those terms, raise your hand, right? And everybody's like, what? <laughs> I never think of my sickness in terms of so that God may glor be glorified. I always think of my sickness in terms of, oh my goodness, I get a free day off of work and I can watch TV all day. That's how I think of sickness. But in this case, he says specifically, and this is like a real deal sickness, it's going to end in him dying. This isn't like when I get the flu for a couple of days and I stay one extra day just to make sure it's out, just to get it all out of my system. This is the real deal flu. This is like the real deal sickness is going to lead to his death. And Jesus says this sickness is so that God could be glorified, so that all of the attention can be directed towards God, so that in his illness, everybody would be reflecting on how great and how powerful and how mighty God is and his son, Jesus Christ. That's why Lazarus is sick. And it's not a new idea. We saw it in John chapter 9 as well with the man who was born blind, who lived until adulthood completely blind. And Jesus said in chapter 9, verse 3, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but it was so that the works of God may be displayed in him. In other words, in the midst of all of this, God has an exacting purpose for this particular man. And it's not atypical for him to do that. I'm not saying every sickness happens so God can do something amazing. I'm not saying that no sickness is the result of sin. In fact, at its core level, all sickness really comes down to the sin that began in the Garden of Eden has propagated itself all throughout history. But in this moment... God is taking advantage of this man's sickness for the purpose of showing the world how powerful God is and who Jesus Christ is. So that's what we're going to see happen in here. So the first people that are going to interact with Jesus when it comes to this sickness uh, are the disciples of Jesus. It says in verse 7, Then after this, he, that's Jesus, said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, uh, he'll recover. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go, let us also go, so that we may die with him. So the disciples, hearing that Lazarus is sick, two days later are like, okay, Jesus, were you going to do anything about this? I mean, Jesus waited two more days at this point. And Jesus says, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to go to Judea. And they're like, what? 
can't you just like heal him from a distance, Jesus? You've done it before, right? The royal official's son, he wasn't there. You healed him from a distance. Can't you just, can't you just heal Lazarus from a distance? You don't actually want to go back to Judea, to the city of Bethany, which is two miles from Jerusalem, which is this city, this walled city that is filled with people who want to kill you. You don't want to go to Bethany, Jesus, because those people who are just trying to stone you will find out you're there. Two-mile walk, they can do that in a day. They'll come find you. Disciples are trying to warn Jesus against this. His response is a little bit, um, uh, it sounds mysterious uh, in the way he says it in verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not of him. If you're trying to just put this into human terms, uh, if you're not trying to look at this as some sort of allegoric statement that he's making, you might look at it and say, well, as long as I'm only around in the daylight, they won't kill me in public in front of everybody. We'll find out later that's not true. Uh, But I think Jesus is actually relating back to something he had said, again, back to John chapter 9 with the man who was born blind. In verses 4 and 5, immediately following what we just read in verse 3, Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And Jesus is basically saying to them, my time here is short. I have to do the works of my father right now. Like now's the time. The timing is perfect. And of course we see Jesus' perfect timing in all of this. He tells him, look, our friend Lazarus, two days later, he's saying, our friend Lazarus isn't sick anymore. He's actually asleep. And they say, well, well, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. And Jesus says, let me make it this a little bit more plain for you. When I said he's asleep, I meant to say, Lazarus is dead. He's making it as clear as possible to them. Now there's a awkwardness, Right? Well, if he's dead, what's the point of going, right? Jesus gives them the point in verse 15. And the way he says it sounds hurtful. In verse 15, Jesus says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm glad I wasn't there to heal Lazarus. Or to say it in a more plain way, I'm glad Lazarus died so that I can do something that will help you believe. Now, who's he talking to? The disciples. Like, these guys all believe, right? These guys already get who he is. Yes, they believe, but they're going to believe in a whole new way when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And then they're going to believe in a whole new way again when Jesus raises himself from the dead. It's the belief, but it's building on that belief. There's so much more for them to recognize about who he is. Again, this is the perfect timing. And then Thomas pipes up. Uh, Most people like to call him Doubting Thomas. I think that's a pretty unfair assessment of who he was. Uh, He was doubting in that moment that he hadn't seen the resurrected Jesus. Having not seen the resurrected Jesus, he did have this moment of, really, is that even possible? But in this moment, uh, doubting Thomas is actually daring Thomas, bold Thomas. This is the Thomas that says, I'll go to Jerusalem and I will die with you, Jesus. He's bold in this moment. He's ready. 
and he's trying to encourage his buddies. Let's all go die with Jesus. Come on. Come on, fellas. What else did you have planned this weekend? I mean, seriously. So here we continue on, again, trying to move somewhat quickly so we can get to the responses. In verse 17, we're going to run across Martha now. Uh, So when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So now Jesus is on his way into town, not quite made it into town yet. Martha heard that he's coming. She runs out to meet Jesus. And she says to him, and this has got to be heartbreaking. She says to him, Jesus, if only you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Which is again one of those things that people kind of go through in grief. Uh, They start to uh, get depressed about things. They begin to argue things out. They begin to bargain. But sometimes there's just this blaming of God that happens in the middle of grief. Just trying to sort through your own emotions, just trying to figure it out. And Martha says this, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then she has this powerful statement afterwards. Even now, I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. Even in that moment, even though she was grieving, even though she was basically blaming if you'd have been here, she knows that whatever he asks, God will give him. So she's not denying the power of Jesus. She's denying the timing of Jesus. Like, even though it didn't work out for my brother this time, I know if you had been here, you could have handled this. Jesus tells her, well, your brother will rise again. She says, I know, I know, I know all about the resurrection. We're all going to rise again someday. I get it, Jesus. But if you'd have been here, Jesus says, I don't think you do understand. And this is one of the I am statements that we have laced within the Gospel of John put in here so that we could believe. In verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. What he's saying to her is, if, if Lazarus believes in me, even though he died, he's actually living. Of course, we recognize that. 
as people who already understand the basics of theology, we would look at this and say, well, yeah, when somebody dies, their earthly body dies, but their soul continues on in the presence of God eternally forever. So yes, died physically, but eternal life in God. So we would recognize, we would understand that, but then he personalizes it towards Martha, and he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's the important question. Do you believe this? Now Martha has to make a decision. And of course she says, Yes, Lord, I have believed and I've already believed this, that you're the Christ, the promised Messiah, the one sent by God, that you're the Son of God. You're the one who came into the world, essentially the God who is visible. She believes in this moment. But the way that Jesus helped her handle her grief was to remind her of some truth. The truth that he who believes or she who believes in Jesus Christ doesn't really die. We do funerals from time to time, and one of the things we try to do is we try to give people comfort. Uh, For me, the greatest comfort is when I know that they knew Jesus. If I know that they knew Jesus, then I can comfort the family and show them what the Scripture says, that he who believes in him didn't really die. They have eternal life in Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection, who is the life. It can bring comfort. And so Jesus is just bringing some simple comfort here, but he also is putting a place of position where a decision has to be made. And and this is uh, important for us, that we kind of reestablish our belief in the resurrection from the dead. I, I have to be confronted with this often as a pastor. I have to constantly be reminded of this because I run across so many circumstances of people that are either dying or who have died, and I have to remind myself of this. That though they die, they live. And the real grief that happens isn't because their life is lost, it's because our relationship is lost. What Martha's really grieving is that she doesn't have her brother physically with her anymore. But because she understands doctrinally that that in the resurrection there's eternal life, that in death we still live, she understands that for her brother, although he died physically, he's going to live still even in that moment he's alive in the presence of God in heaven. That's where that comfort kind of begins to move in. Do you believe that? Well, the evidence of that will come clear as you grieve the losses in your life. Does that bring you comfort or no comfort? That's where you'll start to recognize the level of belief that you have in this. It's 100% okay to grieve as long as you need to grieve the loss of the person who you love because they're not in your life anymore. You grieve what you've lost, but in that you can also celebrate what they've gained. And that for me is this hinge that makes the, the story of Lazarus pretty disturbing. Lazarus, in this moment, is in the presence of God in heaven. In this moment, Lazarus has died and he's, for four days now, been in the everlasting. Jesus is going to bring him back here. 
not comfortable with that. <laughs> I've heard a lot of preachers say this, but the one I heard uh, most was Chuck Smith. He'd always say, if I, am die, if I die and you lay hands on me and bring me back, I will kill you. <laughs> like once I'm in the presence of God, don't mess with me. <laughs> Spent my whole life trying to get there. I finally get there, you bring me back? Are you kidding me? That's what's about to happen to Lazarus. See, the sad part of this story is not that Lazarus died. It's that he was sitting with God and he had to come back here and here's the sad truth. He's going to have to die again. He had to go through the physical process of death again. But Jesus is going to use that to demonstrate his power verse 28, we get to see Martha's sister Mary. Uh, When she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was. She saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. That's the word phileo, brotherly love again, because they don't fully comprehend how much Jesus does love. But some of them said, could not this man who had opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So now Mary is sent for by Martha. She tries to quickly and secretly leave, but all the Jews who had come from Jerusalem saw her leaving. They're there for the purpose of consoling her. These are good friends. These are uh, wonderful people. This is what you should do. You should, when people are grieving, you shouldn't think about how uncomfortable it is for you to try to hang out with a grieving person because you don't know the right thing to say. It's fine to say absolutely nothing, to just be with them as long as they want you with them. And when they tell you to go away, just nicely go away and don't be offended. It's not about you in that moment. They're just trying to get through it. And they might five minutes later say, why don't you hang out with me anymore? And you just, I'm here, I'm here. And you come back. That's they're just, they're just four days later, they're still with Mary and Martha. They're just there ministering to them in just the very, very ministry of the presence of just being present. But both Mary and then in verse 37, the Jews that are there have the same question that Martha had. Well, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then the Jews, could not this man who healed the blind man have kept this man, Lazarus, also from dying? And then it says in between there that Jesus was deeply moved in verse 33 in spirit and was troubled. I'm troubled by the translation because every time I've ever studied this before, every time I've read through it, what I hear is that Jesus is just mourning alongside those people, that Jesus is deeply moved and troubled. I'm hearing that he's just mourning alongside those people. That's what I'm hearing. 
Then as I did a little deeper dive, here's the literal translation for that phrase, deeply moved. To snort with anger. So Jesus was snorting with anger and troubled. Why would he be snorting with anger? Because for the third time he's been told, well, if only you would have been here. If only you would have been here. If only you would have been here. And each of those that are saying that to him are demonstrating, two of which are people who he knows and he loves, who know him, who believe in him. He looks at this and he says, they don't understand. They think here is better than in the presence of my father. That's troubling. It makes him snort with anger. He's going to do it again in verse 38, by the way. He's going to snort with anger again. Uh, by the way, um, there, this verse 35, Jesus wept. Uh, for us, it's a powerful anchor to remind us of the humanity of Jesus Christ. It's also not the only time that he wept in Scripture. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, it records just a few days after this that he's going to be entering into Jerusalem. And as he sees the city on the horizon, he begins to weep. And he says, oh, if only they knew. He's just saying, if they just, if they just realized who I was. And he weeps for their salvation. So here's the humanity of Jesus playing through in his love and in his weeping, but also in his snorting with anger in the circumstance. Verse 38, so Jesus again, snorting with anger, came to the tomb now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. Or as the King James says, surely he stinketh. For he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what had, had been done believed in him. So now we have Jesus at the tomb and he finally decides, okay, it's time. He tells them to remove the stone. They argue. You don't really want to be around somebody who's been in a cave dead for four days. You don't want to do that, Jesus. And Jesus reminds Martha, you said you believed that I am the resurrection and the life. You said you believed that. Let me show you that. So he goes in, stands at the opening, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And then the miracle happens. Lazarus bound up, mummified to a certain extent, wrapped in these cloths gets up and starts trying to find his way to the door. And Jesus says, unbind him, take off the cloths. And Lazarus has been resurrected from the dead. Again, for him, 
I'm assuming this would be a new harsh reality for him. I'm assuming from this day forward, his second life would look a little bit different in the way that he did things, the way he viewed the world. Uh, my uh, deep down personal hope is that those four days that he was uh, in some way uh, in the afterlife, that God the Father was saying, now look, I know this is a lot to ask. <laughs> that God was just explaining to him what is about to happen. Things are about to get weird. But it's for my glory and the glory of my son. And I'm guessing in that moment that Lazarus now with no sin in the presence of God says, absolutely, I'll go back. I'm sure there was a willingness in Lazarus at that point. I don't know if there would have been if you would have asked him going into it, but coming out of it, there's a willingness there apparently in my heart as to how I would see that anyway. And then Jesus in the middle of that, he has this prayer. And the only reason I bring up the prayer, there's, there's two important things about this prayer. One is a little bit of a correction for the way that we pray. And the other is the purpose of the prayer. Here's the correction for the way that we pray. I've, I've uh, explained this before, but I have found it almost impossible to personally live by. Uh, the way that Jesus prayed was often eyes open, hands to heaven. It's like he's looking up at the Father. And here again, it even mentions, uh, Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, and so it's that same thing, but what we've taught ourselves and we've taught our kids since they were little is our hands we fold, our eyes we close, our heads we bow. It's all this, like, so we can talk to God right now. And we do that, you know, for control, like, because we know that they'll get bored and they'll start wiggling and then they'll start getting distracted by the things that they see and they'll start playing with stuff. And now they're not really focused in on the prayer. So we've taught them to Hold your hands so you don't grab stuff and bow your head and close your eyes so you're not looking around. That's what we do. That's just not what Jesus did. For whatever reason, that's what we've come to. But what, apparently what they did all throughout the scripture when they prayed was this, it seems. Um, I love this because we have a gal in the church that when I taught this, she took it to heart. And so sometimes when I pray, I, I have to remember the things I'm supposed to pray for. So I have them written down up here. And so I'll open my eyes and I'll see her sitting over here. Everybody else is like this. And she's like, <laughs> and it's amazing for me. And I always think, man, I wish I was as good as her. <laughs> but I'm not. I tried to do it at pastor's prayer one time. And there's one other pastor that does it. And so all the pastors have their eyes closed. And there's one pastor that just stares off into the distance. And so I'm like, I'm going to do this praying with my eyes open thing. And I look up and he's staring right at me. I'm like, oh, eyes closed, eyes closed. That's weird. <laughs> For whatever reason, I just can't do it. I'm trying. I'm going to work on it. But Jesus looking up to heaven, it's almost like this is the guy I'm looking at. It's one of the things I love about this design here that was, I, I think, accidental. But uh, we have the cross representing the sun. We have the dove representing the Holy Spirit and then the windows open up to the heavens. And so as we look here, we're seeing the Trinity and we're praying up to God the Father, which I like that. But that's how Jesus is praying. But he explains now why he's praying. He's saying these things vocally so that the crowd will hear. Even though he's praying to Jesus, he's doing what every preacher does. He's preaching in the midst of his prayer. And he even admits that to the Father. He says, look, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, Jesus says, I don't want to just walk up to the cave and say, Lazarus, come forth. Because then they'll say, look at what you did. What he does instead is he says, my father, 
And then he says, Lazarus, come forth, so that they will recognize that the one who demonstrated the power of God is speaking to the God of power. So that they'll recognize the connection there, that it's the Father who's actually doing these things in this moment. It's so, so that those people that are listening would believe. And then Lazarus gets up. Now here's where we're going to hit the seven responses. The first response is a pretty quick and pretty clear one. Verse 45, again, a bunch of Jews had come to console Mary and Martha. It says in verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. And that should be the obvious response, right? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you not believe? Like, when you see it, I'm saying from our perspective, we could read this and say, well, anybody could write that. Well, I wasn't there. I didn't see it with my own eyes, but they saw it. So these people who came to console Mary and Martha, they just saw something amazing and they just believed, many of them. The word that catches my attention is the word many, which implies not all of them believed. Even seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead wasn't enough for some people to believe. Well, some of the others, it tells us in verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So some of them seeing Jesus do something miraculous believed. Some of them tattled. Some of them went and told on Jesus. Now, I don't know what their motivation was. Their motivation may be that they're going to the Pharisees because they just think the Pharisees should know. Like something amazing happened. These guys who are supposed to be the representatives of God need to know what happened. Uh, maybe their motive is to get Jesus in trouble. Maybe they're just like, I don't understand, but I know who will. I'll go ask the Pharisees and the chief priests. They'll know. But for whatever reason, they go and they tell the Pharisees. So now the Pharisees know. In verse 47, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together uh, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned to kill Jesus. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it, so that they might seize him. So now you have the Pharisees, the self-appointed religious leaders. You have the chief priests, the God-appointed religious leaders of the, the nation of Israel. They hear what Jesus has done by report. They decide to have a meeting about this. And here's their concerns. This is crazy. What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. That's their first concern. 
If he keeps doing all these miraculous things, people are going to start believing in him. Believing in what? That he can do miraculous things by the power of God? Of course they believe that. It's what they see him doing. Number two, the Romans will come and take away our place. They don't want to lose their position. And our nation. They weren't really concerned about what was right and what was wrong. They were concerned about losing something that they had here on earth. There's nothing on earth that is worth having to surrender something eternal from God. Now, Caiaphas is the high priest this year. He says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. He's actually going to prophesy now as the high priest. God is going to speak through him and tell him exactly what to say. He's going to say this, it's expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now they're going to interpret that prophecy to mean we should kill Jesus. But God was giving an even bigger prophecy than that. As much as it might be expedient politically at that time that one man die so that the nation not be surrendered, God being concerned not with the nation of Israel, but with the people of the nation of Israel and really the people of the whole world, it explains here what the prophecy was really saying. He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. In other words, this was a prophecy of the death of Jesus Christ to save the souls of those who believe in him that they could have eternal life. But they interpret that as, we're going to kill him. That's enough of this healing people of diseases, feeding thousands of people, enough of that, enough raising people from the dead, you're ruining good, perfectly good funerals. We're going to kill you. That's the conclusion that they came to when they heard the things of Jesus. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit into chapter 12, breaking some rules about one chapter a week, but just so I can show you how things turn out for the others involved in the story. Just the first four verses, we'll go over them again next week, but I just want to read them to you real quick, and then I'll quickly point out the different responses. Verse 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. Martha's response to the miraculous work of Jesus was to serve. That was probably just her character anyway, but here she is serving her Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who brought her brother. Uh, I, I imagine he could have asked her anything in the world and she would have done it. Anything. When she realized who he was and how powerful, anything he wanted, that's what I will do for you. She's a servant anyway, but now this is Jesus who raised my brother from the dead. I will serve in any way I can. Lazarus, He's one of those just reclining at the table with Jesus, which may not sound like much, but remember that he was with the Father in heaven, and now he understands fully that Jesus and the Father are one. And now he's just with Jesus, biding his time until he gets to go to the Father again. And then there's Mary. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume, a pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Mary worships Jesus in an amazing way. She's down at his feet, 
She takes this expensive perfume. She anoints the feet of Jesus with it, and then she begins to wipe his feet with her own hair. There is no greater picture that I could show you of worship than that. There really isn't. She takes her own hair to wipe the feet of Jesus. She just bathes his feet in this ointment and wipes his feet. She's just worshiping him. And then lastly, we wonder what the disciples thought of this. Well, we're only really told what one disciple thinks. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, was intending to betray him. Judas, what did you just see him do? But his response is to betray Jesus. I want you to just think through this for a moment. Just for a brief moment, think through this. There should really only be one response to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It should just be the word, wow. I believe, right? Like, wow, I believe. Anything short of that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But it demonstrates the point that for some people, whether it's just not the right time or maybe they never will be saved, that for some people there's absolutely nothing you can do. Jesus will continue to try to communicate the truth to them through his Holy Spirit, through his actions. He's going to continue over and over and over again. Some of those who didn't believe will eventually believe. I think even Judas uh, recognizes his failure right before he dies. He recognizes what he did. Uh, He has his version of repentance, whether or not it led to his salvation. I'm not going to get into that debate. But then there's just going to be some of the Jews that will just never get it. No matter what he does, does, even if he raises himself from the dead, they're just not going to get it. Now, I don't say stop sharing with those people because we don't know whether they're the ones that are going to get it later or that are going to never get it. But what I would say is kind of measure your response. One of the things that is uh, actually pretty important to me is that I have a logical, logically consistent faith. Like if somebody asks me why I believe, it's a little awkward because my first belief in Jesus Christ came just because I heard the gospel. I'm like, that is true. I just knew it was true. That's not very logical. It's kind of an emotional response. But since then, I feel like time and time again, God has proven himself to be true. The scriptures is one way he does that. He proves himself over and over and over again. When I teach through the word, when I read through the word, what I'm actually doing is I'm, I'm not just rehearing a story. For me as a believer, I'm building my belief and my faith. I'm strengthening my belief and my faith. That's why it's so devastating to me when believers say, oh, you know, I, I get into the word every once in a while. I occasionally go to church. Sometimes I pray. I just don't understand why I'm struggling in my faith right now. Because you're not investing in your faith. I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're like, Sean, we're here. We heard the word. All, you know, 57 verses of it in too little bit of a time. 
But let this just be an encouragement and a reminder to you, just that value of continuing to let the word sink into your heart and sink into your life. It solidifies and builds up your faith. I just ask you guys this, to consider what you believe about Jesus Christ. Just consider that question of what it all means to you. What is your personal response? If you're a believer, allow it to build on your faith. Don't just let it kind of go to the side like, yeah, I've heard this one before. Allow it to reinvigorate you in who Jesus Christ is. He is the resurrection and the life who raises people from the dead. But if you're an unbeliever and you hear these things, can I just say, take a minute to, to really think through what you're saying. You're saying, despite all the evidence, I'm choosing to ignore it to believe something else. Which means... When you compare the two groups, those who have examined the evidence and they grow in their belief, and those who examine the evidence and choose not to believe, the ones that are living on faith are not the Christians. The ones who are living on faith, a faith that doesn't make sense, are those who have heard and yet still don't believe. You're the one with the logically inconsistent faith. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promise of eternal life. Lord, I thank you that each and every one of the people that I know and love who have gone on before us, who have fallen asleep, who have died, have entered into eternal life. That the life that they have now is so overwhelmingly better than the life that they had here. Lord, though I miss them, I long for them. I look forward to a day when I get to join with them. It might seem long awaited from this perspective, but to know the eternity that I have with them forever makes it possible for me to wait. Lord, when I recognize the power that you've demonstrated all throughout history, want you to know that it's done the work in my life that you've asked it to. It's strengthened my faith. It's helped me to believe. It's built me up. Oh Lord, I pray for those who have heard the truth and yet do not believe. Lord, I can't give up on them because I know you love them. And I know as long as it's still called today, there's an opportunity for them. Lord, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would come alongside them, that your Spirit would call them to you and that they would hear and answer that call. Oh, Father, I pray for the believer who has been apart from you for a while, who followed you, who loved you, and for whatever reason just has kind of abandoned their faith or just put their faith on hold for a while or just hasn't been active. Oh, Lord, I pray that this would encourage them to return to the God who loves them. And Lord, we ask these things today in Jesus' name, amen.